Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Living in this queer body is a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. It is hosted by Asher Panjuris, who is a queer psychotherapist, group facilitator, and podcaster who lives with multiple chronic illnesses. The most recent episode of their podcast features an interview with documentary filmmaker Cinny Anderson, who is in the process of completing a documentary called So Sick that features stories of women and non-binary folks who live with late-stage Lyme disease and long COVID, both of which Cinny lives with. In the episode, Cinny and Asher discuss how the medical establishment can reckon more substantively with symptoms and conditions, like autoimmune diseases and post-viral conditions, that have often been dismissed as hysterical or psychosomatic. You can listen and find out more at livinginthisqueerbody.com or at livinginthisqueerbody on Instagram. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Sarah Navid. Sarah is a patient advocate and writer, founder of the blog Fabulous and Fatigued. She lives in Canada with fibromyalgia. She's going to talk to us all about that today. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's such a pleasure. We've been in touch for a while, thanks to the lovely Nitika Chopra. So, yes. <laughs> so I'm really Chronicon. happy to have you on the show. I know, Chronicon represent. So let's start from the beginning of your story, because I would love for you to share with our listeners when and how you first realized something was going on physically, got your diagnosis, and, and how you have managed your health since then. Right. Um, so... My story at the time that it started, uh, there weren't a lot of conversations about chronic illnesses or mental illnesses at the time. It was very stigmatized. This is a good 13 years ago. Um, And it started with an accident, actually. Um, I was hanging out with a couple of my friends outside um, in our school playground, and we were sitting on a curb, and I fully remember a car driving him to the school parking lot and I turned around and said that guy is driving really fast he shouldn't be driving that fast in a parking lot especially and we were about to head back inside so the rest of my friends got up from the curb and as I was about to I hadn't yet unfortunately um, I guess things were just meant to be the way that they happened he came and he hit me on my back So I fell off the curb. Um, At the time, I was absolutely fine. I got up. I went and told my friends about it. In fact, 
I went into my math class and I happened to be the first person there. And uh, I loved my math teacher and I loved math. So I went to him and I told him and I told him the story as a joke because I thought it was funny that a car hit me on my back and I was still walking around, you know. Um, And as soon as he heard that, he told me to go to the office downstairs and I didn't want to go because I was one of those students who was a nerd, never went to the office, no trouble, none of that stuff. Let alone missing class. My goodness. <laughs> exactly. So I remember he sent someone downstairs with me. I was practically forced to go. Um, and as I'm soon- out here too. This guy who hit you, did he just keep going? So he hit me and he came out. He did not ask me if I was okay, but he had a passenger in the car. He asked me if I was okay. And the driver told the passenger who happened to be his friend, I guess, she seems to be fine. Fuck it. Let's just go Uh, in the car. And they left. So the driver was actually someone that went to my high school. Oh, wow. He was a year. So I was in grade 11 at the time and he was in grade 12. So, and it happened on, you know, school premises. So when I went into the office, um, I didn't know his name or anything. I hadn't seen him around too much. So they opened up the yearbook for me and told me to, you know, point out who it was. Um, But I remember when I told them, everyone was very shook and scared and I was confused because here I was walking around, nothing's broken, there's no blood. So I just didn't understand because I guess at that point, my concept of illness was just anything that's visible. And it's, I think that's so funny, you know, on its own, that everyone around me said, hey, go call your parents. They called the cops, they called the ambulance. And I'm sitting there really confused. I think I was maybe 16 at the time. I mean, you were in shock, it sounds like. Yeah. And they were asking me all sorts of questions. I went to, after answering all these questions that the cops had for me, they took me to the ER. And I went home that night thinking I was going to be fine the next day. I had no clue that, you know, my life was going to completely change after that day. So I remember a couple of days after I was still in pain and I didn't understand why. So I ended up going to the ER again and I sat there for a good eight hours. Um, and same thing. They, they looked at me, everything seemed fine. Uh, doctors didn't know what was happening, you know, Um, and so, did you consider at any point up to this stage pressing charges against this guy? Uh, so he didn't have, he didn't have insurance. He didn't have driver's license. So, um, in Canada, basically how our, um, system works is you get a G1, you give a written test and you get a G1, then you have to give your G2. Uh, what and you have to wait a year between the two by, by the way so once you have your g1 that sort of um gives you permission to actually start driving and start learning 
Um, don't obviously not driving on your own, but just to start learning. And then you get the equivalent your, of a learner's permit here. It sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And then you get your G2 and then you get your G. So he basically only had the G1, which is the equivalent of a learner's permit. He didn't have an actual license. Um, so I couldn't, you know, press any charges against him. I had to sue my own insurance company. And it was, actually- oh boy, this is, and this is where it's like insurance is so broken, right? Cause it's like, <laughs> you have to, insu- you have to sue the insurance company to get coverage. Cause you're not going to get any coverage through that guy too. I mean, I suppose that's why it's good. You were insured through your family. It sounds like. Yeah, I was. Um, and how it works is if you're, de- if you're a dependent, even if you're not a driver, you basically end up suing uh, whoever you're dependent on their insurance. So I ended up, I didn't have a driver's license at the time. So I ended up suing my dad's insurance company. Man. Um, and yeah. And so afterwards I started my physiotherapy. I started a massage therapy. I was taking painkillers on a daily basis and just completely confused and lost and hoping that I was going to be fine. And once I actually, you know, um, sued my dad's insurance company, um, they sent me to a specialist, I guess, because they wanted proof of, you know, the fact that they, they didn't know, they didn't want to believe what was happening again, because it was, of course, they don't want to pay for it. Right. (laughs) So they sent me, um, to the specialist and that's, I think when my life sort of turned around, actually, I forgot to mention the point where before that happened, my parents and I, every few months would always end up at my family doctor's office trying to ask what was happening and why I wasn't getting better. And she didn't have an answer either. And so she first uh, sent me to a specialist And this specialist also just gave me painkillers and sent me back home. And a few months after we were back at that same place, asking my doctor, what the fuck is happening? And that's when my family doctor decides to pull up the reports that the specialist had sent her. And she tells me that I have fibromyalgia. So my doctor had these reports for a while. Didn't bother reading them. Didn't bother telling me. Wow. Yeah. So I found out a few months later. So I had already been diagnosed. I just didn't know. That's really like, why? 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 Like, did you, did you like question? I mean, that's one of those things that it happens in the moment. And how do we think to even question the doctor in those, that moment? Because it's shocking enough that you're getting life-changing information, but like, exactly did you sort of look back at that and go, why didn't I say to her, like, what the hell? Like, I, I think that now, to be honest, um, at the time it, at the time it was all too much. I think that at the time I was, I was literally sitting there going, how do I even say this word? How do I even spell this word? And yeah. at the it was oh great so now I have an illness that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life and I just had tears in my eyes and I was constantly crying because up until that point in my life I thought I was going to be okay and again I looked at myself in the mirror and 
I still didn't have the concept of a chronic illness or an invisible illness. So I thought I was going to be okay sooner or later. So that happened. And that's why the insurance company sent me to the other specialist to make sure that um, I wasn't making things up, that I actually did have fibromyalgia. And that was very life-changing for me because the doctor realized how much pain I was in, how horrible it was, because at the time I couldn't even sit for um, you know, more than a few minutes. I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. It was really bad. Um, and so he suggested certain things that could help me with my fibromyalgia. And then I went to my doctor, back to my family doctor and said, Hey, you've been telling me that there's nothing I can do. And this is what I have to live with for the rest of my life. And I just have to take painkillers, like 10 painkillers a day or something. Um, but this specialist just told me I can take this medicine and that medicine and that medicine, and it can improve my quality of life. And I was like, give me anything just as long as my quality of life gets better because it was horrible at the time. Um, you know, not even being able to carry my backpack. I remember I had amazing friends in high school, but I would have never, you know, I could never pick up my own backpack. They had to carry my backpack for me. So the tiniest little things, um, when at the time when most people are thinking about graduating and going to prom, um, you know, um, going to university, which university they were going to get into, I was completely occupied with the pain that I was in and the fact that um, I went from being a 90 student to an 80 student because of all the pain that I was in and I, I would barely go to school. I would go to school maybe two or maximum three times a week. Um, so yeah. what about also the mental health side of this? Cause it sounds like there wasn't much interaction between you and the guy who caused the accident too. So like, yeah. was that something like a, a hard pill to swallow and something that you had to work through too? I actually saw him on a bus once, um, wow. later. And it was just weird because I remember looking at him thinking, this guy has no idea that he has completely changed a person's life, you know? Um, And those are the things that really make you think. People text and drive thinking it's not a big deal. They'll hit someone. They don't deal with that person. They they continue dealing with the insurance company. They barely get to see the person that they hit usually in the other car. And it could be because of your stupid mistake um, or, you know, not you not putting away your phone that somebody else's life is, has just gotten worse. Um, in terms of the mental health um to be honest, for the, for the longest time, I didn't even know that I was depressed. I didn't know that I was getting anxiety. I didn't know what depression meant. I didn't know what anxiety meant. Um, those are things that came maybe like four years or five years later. The realization that there's another aspect, that there's the 
whole mental health aspect to it. Like I said, right at the beginning that these weren't things that were spoken about back then. Nobody spoke about depression or anxiety. So even if I was feeling a certain way, I didn't know. I didn't know to call it depression or anxiety. I didn't know anyone around me. There was no Instagram. You know, I didn't know anyone that was speaking about it. No, nothing on TV that covered it. So there was no way for me to know. Um, all of that came much, much, much later. And wow. yeah, even, even when it did come, it was really hard hitting in the sense that nobody believed me. So even when I would say I'm depressed or I have anxiety, I would get told that I'm being dramatic. What about doctors? Did they believe you? I didn't speak to my doctor about it at the time. Yeah, because you were sort of looking at your body in silos the way the medical institutions do. Yeah. So I've come such a long way when I look back. Um, So many things have changed for the better, obviously. So many conversations are happening now that never happened back then. And it's, you know, and I'm, I'm, it makes me really happy. Uh, it makes me mm. happy that these things exist now because I look back at how lost I was, how isolated I was at that time. And I didn't have a single person around me who understood or spoke to me about it and it's nice to know that now if someone finds themselves being in that place they can just go on google type in you know a blog fibromyalgia blog fibromyalgia instagram something something or another will pop up and they can message someone and talk to someone i didn't find anyone the first time I spoke to someone who had fibromyalgia was three years ago. So I literally spent 10 years of my life all by myself, surrounded by able-bodied people who are amazing. Don't get me wrong. I love them with all my heart, um, but none of them understood what was happening. And when I spoke to the first person, um, sorry, when I spoke to the person that had fibromyalgia, I cried for three, four hours. My parents were looking at me wondering what happened. Why do you think you cried? Was it because you felt seen? Yeah. Because for the first time in my life, I didn't have to tell someone, this is what I'm experiencing. The other person was asking me, so, hey, does this happen? And I was like, oh my God, yes. And then they asked me, okay, what about sleep? Is your sleep disrupted? Oh my God, yes. All these things that, you know, my doctor should have spoken to me about, but even my doctor didn't. Um, So yeah, it was just very overwhelming in a beautiful way. Mm. So what does that look like in terms of treatment? Like when did things begin to shift where you started seeking the mental health support and connecting more to the community? Um. So I would say the mental health aspect of it came maybe uh, six years ago. So for a good seven years, I didn't seek any help. 
again, even if there, there were things available, so for example, in university, there are counselors available. I didn't have the knowledge that there were counselors available. I didn't know that there was such a thing as accessibility services that you could go to and they could help you if you miss your classes, if you need notes. I used to walk into my exams with a pillow or a cushion because I couldn't sit on those hard chairs. Mm. Didn't know, I found out in my last year that I can go to accessibility services and they can set up my exam, you know, in a separate room where I can take breaks and I can get up and stretch and that I could be given extra time for, uh, for the exam because of all the brain fog and the fact that I was fighting through pain while I was writing my exam, you know, I didn't even know Mm. that. So I, I was a lost puppy for the first five, six years, seven actually. And then slowly and gradually within the last six years, I started seeking support. So just going to accessibility services and my marks improved like that because I finally had the help that I needed. And it's really sad because halfway through university, I, cause I was like an A plus student, right? And all of a sudden I'm struggling in university and people are already struggling, obviously, cause it's a big jump from high school to university, but it was an even bigger jump for me in the sense that I was navigating a completely different life, trying to get used to it, you know, grieving the old life that I had and getting used to so many different changes, things that I can no longer do. I used to think back then that for whatever reason, I'm not smart anymore or that I've, I've become dumb. And now when I look back, I tell myself, no, there, there is no such thing. It's, It's just because you were struggling so much and you needed that help and there was nobody to help you. If you had, you know, if you went to accessibility services in your first year of university, you would have been that great, amazing student all throughout. If you went to that counselor right away, same thing. These are things that I did in my last two semesters. How sad is that? It's not sad because it sounds like, I mean, if there isn't the, if it's not being talked about, if it's not being advertised, how are you to know? Yeah. But it's just sad that my life could have been a lot easier. But you had to struggle that long. I struggled for so long. Yeah. I would, I would have exams back to back. So I remember having an exam at 9am. Then I remember having an exam at 7 p.m. the same day, and then having an exam the next day at 9 a.m. I don't even get sleep, right, because of my fibromyalgia. I can't sit for long periods of time. Anytime I'm stressed, I'm in more pain. I don't know how I went through doing three exams back-to-back like that. And when I went to accessibility services, one of the accommodations that I got was I could only write one exam per day helps so much. So yeah, um, I really wish that these services were talking about more 
I think I think they are talking about more at this point, uh, but back then, unfortunately, not. Yeah, and what about the therapies to treat the pain? Because it sounds like once you found that doctor through the insurance, oddly mm-hmm. enough, um, you were offered different therapies rather than here's a handful of painkillers. So, have you gotten to a point where you're managing your pain on a day to day basis? So he suggested some things, uh, but so before, before I went to him, all my family doctor ever did was give me painkillers. He suggested medication that was actually under best practice guidelines for fibromyalgia. So there are certain medications, even though there aren't specific medications that are for fibromyalgia, there are certain medications that still work for fibromyalgia and for the nerve pain, you know, there's certain depression medications, or I know one, there's one for epilepsy, I believe that actually works for fibromyalgia. So he made those suggestions. So my pain was more controlled on a day-to-day basis rather than, oh, I'm in pain. Let's pop a painkiller. I'm in pain again. Let's pop a painkiller. So it was more so that because my family doctor didn't even have any knowledge about that or never bothered looking into it, whatever the case was. Um, So there's that. And at this point in time, I would say that, you know, it's been 13 years now. um, So I've really gotten to know what works for me, what doesn't work for me. um, The things that I do that will make my pain worse things that I could do to make it better, how to push through the pain. Um, I shouldn't be sitting on the ground for a long period of time. It'll hurt my back. I need back rest at all times. I can't sit on any hard surfaces. So they're just things that I realized through a lot of trial and error over the years that, you know, if I'm getting ready, I should sit and do my hair or do my makeup because that way, uh, you know, I am saving some energy. Sounds like you've been taking Um, like holistic approaches really to your pain management. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still obviously taking medication, but at the same time, I think that just that is not enough for me to have a good quality of life. So, um, I I did start seeing a naturopath a few years ago as well, and that definitely helped. So a lot of um, before, so again, this goes back to my family doctor. Um, I think that a lot of doctors know how to treat um, acute conditions, but a lot of chronic conditions require there's no fix it all medication for it or treatment for it. And it requires an overall approach. So medication, your lifestyle, the way you eat, exercise, everything is a part of it. Making sure that there are no, because there's so much fatigue and insomnia and depression and anxiety, making sure your hormones are balanced or making sure that you don't have any vitamin deficiencies. And so those were things that I discovered through my naturopath. Um, when she did an entire, you know, a really thorough blood test for me, which I had to pay out of pocket for, which I could have ordered through my family doctor, but she didn't want to. Oh, um, wow. For me. So you kept seeing her, this family doctor? 
I changed my family doctor. Things have definitely gotten better, but I constantly, people keep telling me I need to change my family doctor again. Um, But we'll see. It's, it's a lot of, I still really struggle with, you know, standing up for myself or um, advocating for myself. For example, like this blood test, um, I paid out of my pocket and it's covered under OHIP. The only requirement is if your family doctor orders it. Um, OHIP, sorry, is Ontario Health Insurance um, Plan. That's what it stands for. And so I paid for it out of my pocket. And it's been about a year and a half since I had that blood test, um, which was an eye opener, by the way, because everything was off and I would have never known had I not gone to her because my family doctor was never going to do that blood test for me Mm. for me to get another blood test done. I have a doctor's appointment next week. Um, let's see if she, if she ends up doing it for me this time, or if I'll have to pay out of my pocket again, I really hope that she fingers crossed, um, Mm. ordering it for me this time. I mean, you you mentioned the advocacy side of things here and, and obviously in sharing your story, you are becoming an advocate and stepping more into that role yourself. But I'm curious to know whether you leaned more on friends and family as your advocates once you got this diagnosis, you know, going through the process of finding treatments that worked and, and dealing with these family doctors is there anyone in your life who stands out to you as the person that you've turned to who's been your advocate? The only person that I can think of at this point is my, I have a really good friend. His name's Moses. Um, he will eventually be listening to this. So hi Moses. Hi Moses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like he's one of those people who really watches out for me in the sense that if he comes across and he, he is a nurse himself. So if he comes across any new uh, medication or any new treatment or, Hey, I heard this doctor is really good for fibromyalgia or even if he, um, so you know how I mentioned, I, I spoke to someone who had fibromyalgia three years ago. He connected me to her actually. So he happened to be taking a course um, and she was the prop and she mentioned having fibromyalgia. So he walked up to her and told her that he has a friend who has fibromyalgia. And, you know, if, if it was okay for him to connect the two of us. And so I feel like he um, has been doing that for me for years and years. I feel like he's always watching out for me anytime anything comes up. Um, he'll give me a call uh, and be like, hey, I came across this. Other than that, um, it's sadly been a struggle with most of my family up until a couple years ago, I would say, in the sense that they never understood um, what I was going through. Uh, My pain was constantly diminished. um, And like I mentioned before, they thought I was being dramatic or um, the entire concept of toxic positivity where, hey, you know, there are other people out there who are living a life that's much worse. You should be thankful for the situation that you're in. Mm. 
now, you know, you, it could be worse. Oh yeah, exactly. And so if I can think of anyone, um, that has really helped me walk through that journey, it would be him. Uh, what effect do you think that's had on your relationships? Do you think that getting sick and having your pain diminished by your family has distanced yourself from them in some ways? And, and, you know, on the flip side that you've deepened your relationship with people like Moses when they've been able to step up for you. Yeah. So I, sorry, this makes me, it brings up a lot of hard stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I totally get that. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's, it's a really weird place to be in because that's when you want to lean the most on your close family and friends, your immediate family. Um, but you know, when your pain is diminished by them, where do you even go? You know? Um, so looking back, yeah, my relationship with my family was not good. It's definitely gotten so much better over the past few years, but at the beginning, nobody even wanted to accept the fact that I had fibromyalgia because it was a lot easier for them to pretend like I was completely okay. They, so, you know, um, each time I would say something, they would just say, you're fine. So, and that's probably because it's invisible. Yeah. I sometimes felt like banging my head on the wall because I felt like nobody was hearing me out. I wanted to scream, um, and tell the world things, you know, um, but nobody believed me and things really started changing when my older brother got married. Um, his wife is a doctor and that just completely changed things. And then after that, my younger brother also got married to a doctor. So having two doctors in the family is super helpful because they understand. And at the same time, they can make other people understand. So it's not just me saying these things. Now it's a doctor telling them this is what happens. They're validating you. And yeah. And so for whatever reason, I mean, I'm thankful for it that, you know, um, they started believing these things, but it's, I just wish they believed all those things when they were coming from me, but they needed someone else, a doctor to say those things to them. Mm. But yeah, so our relationship has thankfully, you know, gotten so much better. We're at a really great place right now, but for the first 10 years um, up until, you know, this big change happened in our family, um, things were bad. Hmm. And your relationship with Moses, you think has also been deeper because he's been there. A hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent. When, when it feels like everyone else has turned away from you, but you know, there's that one person or two people um, who actually listen and, you know, there's not much someone can do for you. But listen, 
practice deep listening um, or not diminish or dismiss your pain. And even just having someone do that for you feels like the world. It feels like heaven. And Mm -hmm. definitely my relationship with people that are more understanding towards this aspect of my life has gotten better and deeper because of it. Yeah. So what is a typical day looking like for you now? You've been living with this diagnosis for 13 years. You have, it seems in many ways, mastered self-management. So how are you balancing the demands of life and work and your relationships and your body as you're managing potential flares and symptoms? So I read something the other day that really resonated with me. And it went something like this, and I might be butchering it, I hope not, but it, it basically said that we're surrounded by plastic balls and glass balls, you know, and if a plastic ball falls, that's okay because it'll bounce back up. But if a glass ball falls, it shatters. So I feel like my life is constantly figuring out which balls are plastic and which are glass and then prioritizing the glass over the plastic balls. Um, And at the same time, I feel like it requires the people around me to also be understanding and know that if I'm not there for them and I'm not there to pick up their plastic balls, then I will definitely be there to pick up their um, glass balls. And the reason that I'm not there to pick up their plastic balls is probably because I'm picking up glass balls somewhere else. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. I think it makes total sense. It's like, you got a sort of packing peanut your life, don't you? Yeah. It was, it was such a nice analogy. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm definitely using this. It's also about prioritizing, isn't it? It's like, you've got limited energy, you've got limited mobility in the sense that like, there's only so much your body can do. So, mm-hmm. you know, you do have to prioritize the stuff that's at the top of the list. You might not get to the stuff at the bottom of the list, but you're putting your energy into the stuff that's important. Exactly. And so I feel like even just as an adult with everything that people juggle, you know, some, some glass balls fall at times or some plastic balls fall and you have to be okay with it. Um, and then you add a uh, chronic illness to that mix and it complicates things even more, obviously. So I have to constantly tell myself it's okay. If you know, some of those balls fall, it's, it's really okay. Um, and so, yeah, just, just being kinder to myself and constantly having to tell myself that, um, and also at the moment, because of the pandemic, um, obviously my life looks a lot different than it usually would. But when I used to work full time and, you know, um, come back home, I remember doing things like making sure I'm napping uh, during my commute um, because I cannot get through a full working day without naps. So I I would nap on the train to work. I would nap on the way back from work. And I would also nap during lunchtime. And so I would, each time I ever went for an interview, I'm literally looking around, trying to suss out the place, figure out if there's a place I can go and nap at during lunch. Um, 
but yeah, I, you know, at times have had to sit on the couch in the lobby and take a nap over there. It requires you to be shame, shameless at times, but. Um, but also if those accommodations aren't being readily made. Yeah. You're doing what you've got to do to take care of yourself. Exactly. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned also some of these situations where people wouldn't believe you when your family mm-hmm. didn't believe you. Can you talk to us about any of those situations, like specific uh, events that may have occurred where, you know, you had to validate the existence of your diagnosis to someone who simply couldn't understand it because they couldn't see it, be that a family member or a friend, perhaps even a colleague? So, um, I can't think of a specific situation right now, but I guess, so, so it's been quite a journey in the sense that I remember at the beginning of my diagnosis, I actually want to justify my illness to people, but nobody would listen to me. And then I went into this phase where I wanted to justify my illness to people and people would listen to me, but they just wouldn't empathize or they just wouldn't they mm. know how to put themselves in my shoes, you know? Yeah. And then I went to a place, which is where I'm at right now, where I just don't care to justify my illness to anyone. Mm. Um, and I feel like it's such a great feeling to be in that place because the first phase was painful as fuck. Um, nobody even believing you, you know, um, and telling you that you're completely okay. And then the second phase where you're getting blamed for things that are not in your hands, like, hey, you disappeared for this long when I actually had a flare-up. And I didn't have the energy to chit chat if it was, if you were going through, uh, you know, something major that you needed my help with, sure, I would most definitely be there for you. But if it's just chit chatting, meeting up for fun, I cannot do that. Mm. How you come over? It's your plastic balls and your glass balls. Exactly. And so, you know, I've had people tell me I walk in and out of relationships whenever I want and I pull them. I've had, yeah, I've had people tell me that um, before I am about to disappear that I should let them know. Oh. (laughs) And it's like, it it feels like it's work, you know, you've got to call into work and let them know I'm calling in sick. So yeah. you have to pick up the phone and let people know, hey, this is what's happening. Um, I have had, oh, I'm trying to think what else. No, I mean, I think those are like, those are all examples that I think a lot of people can relate to. <laughs> but I mean, it is, it's amazing the amount of forethought that people expect you to have when you're a Spoonie. That like, I can't tell you when I'm going to flare. It starts happening and it's too late. Like there's no buffer time for me to like warn you. If I had a warning system myself, I'd be able to stave this thing off. But it happens when it happens. And the worst is when they tell you, hey, it's not your fault. It's the illness. 
Okay, but yeah, but then believe me the rest of the time. Hold on a second. So you're blaming my illness, which is actually a part of me. So mm. you are blaming me for something that's not in my control. And also, do you not think that I already have enough complaints myself? Like I don't have the ability to do this or that things that other people do, you know, um, I already, things, things that ableistic bodies are able to do. I already have those complaints with myself. And now you're adding your complaints to that. Is that even fair? Mm. Um, But I am really, really, really happy and satisfied with where I am right now in the sense that it took a long time, but I think it was the realization that, okay, this is, this, this illness is something that I have to live with for the rest of my life. And my body is my home and I have to respect my illness. I have to respect my body. I have to respect my home. And if you can't respect it, and if I'm saying something and you just choose not to listen, then I can choose not to have you in my life. Yeah. Sounds like you've gotten to a place of self-possession in that sense. Yeah. And that feels awesome. Mm. I've been working behind the scenes as a patient advisor with the team at Flowly, an NIH-backed mobile app for helping manage pain, anxiety, and sleep. When you subscribe, Flowly sends you a virtual reality headset and heart rate sensor and then collects your heart rate to convert it into beautiful visualizations in VR to help relax your nervous system. This app comes with an impressive pedigree, having been developed by top doctors at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and USC. I've seen how their members have experienced life-changing impact like sleeping through the night for the first time in 15 years, feeling in control of their anxiety, and managing their pain. Right now, the team at Flowly are offering three months at 15% off on either their monthly or annual plans. Go to flowly2.page.link slash uninvisible. That's F-L-O-W-L-Y, the number two, dot page dot link slash uninvisible to claim your discount and check out the app. It's so worth it. And there's even a vibrant community you can join as part of your membership. Go get it now. What about within the medical system there? I know that you get healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. That's considered a human right in Canada. <laughs> concept. Um, but within your care plan, have you had moments where you've experienced undue amounts of prejudice or maybe privilege because mm-hmm. of the way you present? Because you are a woman going into the medical system, you're a woman of color going into mm-hmm. the medical system. Do you think some of the experiences you had may have been different if you presented differently? Perhaps if you were a white woman, if you were male. Right. So I've actually, I believe I've actually experienced both. So um, prejudice in the sense that my family doctor is actually also a woman of color. And we happen to practice the same religion. Um, And so I've had my family doctor tell me, that I should just get married and that would solve all my problems. Oh boy. And I think that that is deeply rooted in the fact that I'm from a South Asian background and it's, it's the fact that in South Asian culture, 
girls while they're growing up are taught how to typically, you know, um, I'm not generalizing, but um, that's, that's how it used to be at least. Um, you know, they're thought to cook and clean and how to take care of the household and knit. And you're so- trained to be a bride. Pretty much. And so that thought process, even though we've come a long way and, you know, women have their careers now, at the end of the day, marriage is supposed to be the goal. And so. And also, I'd like to know how that would make all your pain go away. <laughs> exactly. Not even scientific, Doc. <laughs> but it's, I think it's more so the entire if you get married, you'll have, you'll have a husband to take care of you. You don't have to worry about finances. I think, I think it came from, you know, Hmm. I don't know that view point of view. Um, and then also just the fact that, um, I'm Muslim and she's also a Muslim. And so because of that, I believe certain treatments that would actually benefit me were not even brought up to me. Like for example, CBD oil um, was not brought up to me and it happens to be the best treatment for some of my symptoms like insomnia, anxiety, chronic pain. And, you know, I, I sincerely think that if I was not a woman of color, you know, or a male, um, that, that suggestion would have come up. But in this case, I had to bring it up. Um, and so those are sort of, I guess, the different ways that, um, the bias has shown up. Yeah. Um, but then also I would say there is some sort of privilege in the sense that we're from the same background And so the same culture, she sort of understands the dynamics of it. And so it helps in that aspect. Yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. A bit of both. Push pull. Yeah, absolutely. So you've probably heard a lot of stories of others in the medical system. And I'm curious to know, given what you've heard, what your experiences are, would you say that some of these stories that we hear about racial, gender, sexual identity, inequity in the healthcare system are tantamount to their own public health crisis, that these biases that are playing into people's experiences are a public health crisis of their own? So because I haven't personally experienced that myself, I don't think that I can speak too much about it. However, the one thing that I could think of off the top of my head is the fact that um, I can speak of the immigrant experience. Um, And so one of the things that I could think of off the top of my head is the language barrier. A lot of times immigrants come that are not fluent in English or French. And when they go to doctors uh, by law, a translator is not required to be present. And when a translator is not required to be present, obviously, you know, the doctor is not understanding the patient and the patient is not understanding the doctor. So a lot of times 
the patient might not be able to fully express what's going on in their body, what their worries are. And so yeah, a lot of problem. Be, yeah, a lot of things are overlooked because of that, you know. Um, and then at the same time, um, the doctors in turn obviously might be recommending things that the patient is not understanding. So there's that entire uh, barrier when it comes to language and not just language uh, in terms of the words spoken, but also just the cultural context of it. Um, different. So, so when we talk about pain over here, we talk about um, a stabbing pain or an achy pain or a burning pain. I remember when I got into my accident and I had to go see a doctor and they asked me all these questions. I was so confused, even though I fully understood English, I didn't know how to describe the pain. And now I know because I've lived with it for 13 years. So I'm very well able to explain what kind of a pain it is. But if I had trouble uh, explaining that or pinpointing what kind of pain I was experiencing, I wonder how someone who doesn't understand the language would communicate because different cultures and different languages could be expressing pain in different ways. So I think Absolutely. control as well. Yeah. I think that's a really salient point. And I'm wondering as well, I mean, talk to us a little bit about the Canadian healthcare system. How is it working for patients? You mentioned earlier the acute care experience versus preventive and chronic pain. Um, And in what ways is it falling short and requiring improvement, do you think? So, um, obviously, it's amazing that there is accessibility, right? Anyone and everyone is able to, you know, get access to health care. But most of that, as I mentioned, is it works perfectly for the acute conditions and it becomes problematic in, uh, when it comes to chronic conditions. Um, and the reason for that is that our resources are limited. There's a quota, quota on the number of doctors there, can, uh, there are, which means that the time that they spend with each patient is also limited, which means that they can really sit with a patient for five minutes or 10 minutes and things that are a lot easier to understand. Oh, um, you have a migraine, cool hair. This is, this is the medication you take, you can take versus matters of the body of pain that are much more complicated. They require a more in-depth conversation or they require For example, even with fibromyalgia to be diagnosed, it is a process of elimination. So it requires the doctor to do a whole bunch of tests instead of just doing one blood test and saying, hey, you have fibromyalgia. So that requires a very in-depth analysis. And that is usually missing. Also, a lot of times there's very long waits. So I know that... um, I can walk into my family doctor's office and say, hey, I need to see a dermatologist. And I will most definitely see that dermatologist, but it might be 10 months later. And 10 months wow. not have that problem. Yeah. So my mom actually had rosacea and that's what happened to her. 
by the time she had her dermatologist appointment, her rosacea was almost gone. We had um, researched the internet like crazy, figured out what products she could use, what cosmetic products she could use that would be helpful. And she did all of those things. And to a large extent, her rosacea had gotten better by then. So, yeah, I, I believe when it comes to the wait times, um, it falls short over there. Also, just the fact that I believe people that work in the healthcare system, and that applies to every country, most of those people are desensitized to our illnesses. And that's understandable because they can't be carrying all that trauma home. It's a lot. However, people need to find a middle ground. And I think that that is missing a lot of times. Like bedside manner, you mean? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think that's that's interesting that you bring that up because I know that it's a part of a lot of medical training, but it seems not to be adequate anywhere. Yeah. Hmm. And sometimes it's just a personality. It's someone who's an active listener and can, exactly. can do empathy. Yeah. 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 And And it's not just, if you're a doctor, it's not just about empathy because... After empathy, there's another step that's required, which is taking action. However, a lot of times since that empathy is not there, there's no action either. Yeah, it becomes not priority. Exactly. So I really think that a lot of times people get ignored because of that. So having empathy is super important. Yeah. From a caregiver perspective, whether you're a medical professional or otherwise. Exactly. Mm. So let's talk about your advocacy work. You've got a blog and you've been starting to do some public speaking and stuff. Obviously you're telling us your story here on the show today. Talk to us about what inspired you to get started with this work and how it's impacted your own healing journey. Honestly, when I look back, like I've been mentioning all throughout the past few years, things have really um, changed for me in terms of, you know, Finally, my family being very understanding and having understanding friends, me knowing myself better, knowing how to take care of myself. So it's gotten a lot better over the years, um, the past few years. But before that, when I look at Sarah from 13 years ago or Sarah from six years ago, that versus the person that I became once I started my blog, huge difference huge difference. It's been such a healing process for me. I, I think that the most amount of healing that I've had and the most amount of actually understanding myself at a more deeper level has only happened ever since I started my blog. Do you think writing it sort of pulled it out of you and allowed you to sort of place it somewhere outside of yourself to be able to like object objectively look at it in a different way. A hundred percent. But also it made me more open to having more conversations about it. I would never talk about my chronic illness. It would never become the topic of discussion. I find myself talking about it a lot more now. And because I have a blog, people talk about it. People ask me about it more rather than, you know, before where most people didn't know most of my friends didn't know that I had fibromyalgia my most of my extended family didn't know 
that I had fibromyalgia. It was something that I, I remember when I hit that publish button for my website, I was so nervous because it was the first time that I was telling the entire world that I have fibromyalgia. And this was just last year, you know? So before that, my cousins didn't know. My aunt didn't know. Some of the closest people in my life didn't know. And I think that uh, the reason that I really was, was and am passionate about this is because I look back at the Sarah that was lost and confused when she got diagnosed, when her pain was diminished, when her mental illnesses were diminished, when she was told that, you know, she was, she was constantly fed positive toxic, uh, toxicity. Um, she, she was so alone. She was isolated and I really wanted to do something for her and for anyone else that's in that situation. So it was something that I had been thinking about for years and years that I want to help people that are younger, um, you know, in their teenage years, um, you know, or in their 20s that have, you know, fibromyalgia or any other chronic illness, an invisible illness, because I realized that I was taking up space in places that were not used to having people with chronic illnesses and invisible illnesses. That everywhere I found myself, everything was designed around ableistic people. That there were accommodations present, but all those accommodations were only present for people with visible illnesses. The simplest example is after my accident, when I had to get on the bus to go home, there, was, there were seats available for the old folk or for, for people with visible disabilities. I had a right to sit on that seat, but every day I questioned myself if I could sit on that seat because of the sign that was up there. And I thought to myself, these people are going to think, what is this 16-year-old doing here? She's absolutely healthy. Why is she not getting up when this older gentleman just walked on the bus? And you're talking about the signs that have wheelchair, people using mobility yes. aids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that was the very first dilemma I remember I had after my accident. That was the first time I realized there's nothing that's, you know, been put in place for people that have invisible illnesses. And so I, I would dread my half hour long bus rides because as I mentioned, I couldn't carry my backpack, but while I'm going home, I have to, my friends are not going to go home with me. Um, they carried it at school the entire day, but yeah, having my backpack on my back, um, and then having to stand when I couldn't stand for longer than five, 10 minutes. And so that's when I knew that I really had to do something and I really had to help people and make people realize people that are just newly diagnosed with these illnesses that they're not alone, that there are people out there um, that will hear them out 
I want people to know that their life does not end when, you know, they get diagnosed because that's how I thought at that process, uh, at that time, that, that, that was my thinking process at the time. I want them to realize that, yeah, there might be certain things that they're limited to, but there's so many other things that they can still do provided, you know, they'll have to work around it a bit. They can't, you know, be partying for 10 hours a day or something, but they can still go partying for an hour, for example, you know, so there are adjustments that you have to make, but you can still live a normal life. And so that was very important for me. And the second thing that was very important for me was trying to, through my advocacy work, trying to make allies of people that have chronic illnesses understand what's going on with us because again, I didn't have that. And so those are the two things that I really want to achieve through all the work that I'm doing, because I think it just goes back to what I was missing in my life at that time, you know? Absolutely. And this leads me directly into, I'd love for you to give us some top three, a couple top three lists. The first one is I'd love for you to give us the top three tips you have for people who suspect maybe there's something off with them, or maybe they're diagnosed with fibromyalgia like you, someone who's living this invisible chronic illness life, what would your top three pieces of advice be? So I would say, first of all, to accept yourself. I think that that's the most important thing because and it doesn't have to happen overnight. I mean, for you, it took years, but it happened. Yes. But start that process as soon as you can, because the healing will only happen once you accept it. It's not going to happen if you're constantly grieving your past life and looking back at it and hoping to get back there one day. That's not going to happen. Yeah, you might not have the life that you had dreamed of, but you might have an equally equally amazing life, you know? You just just have to accept and be patient with yourself and once the acceptance comes, that's the only way you can take those steps to, you know, feel better, to to get better. Um The second one would be to make your wellness your priority. Glass balls, baby. Yeah, a hundred percent. So important. I think that, you know, in the past, um, for me, running uh, running for those relationships that I thought that I was going to have for the rest of my life was very important, making sure those people were still in my life, even though you know, they refuse to listen or when they listen, they refuse to empathize. So I was running after the wrong things. So I think that just making yourself and your wellness journey, the priority is very, very, very important. You know, eating healthy, um, exercising, meditating, um, making those changes in your lifestyle, having habits that support your wellness. I think that's super important. And then the last one would be, 
Yes. Find a community. Oh yeah. That's a big one. Yes. So as I mentioned, I didn't have that, you know, until last year, my blog is what gave me that community. So I think that that is so important. I remember I did look into, I did look into something of this sort back in the day, but because I didn't find anything of that sort, I kind of gave up on it. But when I started my blog, I realized more recently that there's so much information and there's so many people on the internet that are out there that can relate to you, that will understand everything you're going through. And these people will understand you and your life way more than your friends and family will because they're going through it, you know? And so like chronic con for me is the love of my life because I felt so seen for the first time in my life. And I felt a connection with everybody in that room. And that they didn't have to have the same condition, but they got it. Exactly. And, and see, that's the beauty of it because none of us have the same condition, but everyone knows how to listen, how to hold space for you. And those are things that able, able-bodied people usually don't know how to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I think that's beautiful. What about, here's a fun one. What are the top three things in your life that give you unbridled joy and that you're not willing to compromise on despite your diagnosis and the lifestyle changes you've made to, to live with fibromyalgia? These can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, maybe comfort activities when you're having a flare. But what are three things that you turn to to light yourself up? Okay, so this one's a bit weird, but I absolutely love eucalyptus. Okay. Oh, I like this. I've got a eucalyptus tattoo. Oh, I love eucalyptus. <laughs> and we're talking eucalyptus body oil, eucalyptus uh, bath shower, um, essential oils, room spray, pillow spray, <laughs> perfume. Yeah. You in it and I want it. Love it. And I have it literally. It, there's just something about it mm. that just makes me feel so good. It's very grounding. It's like a very earthy, yes, but also ethereal kind of scent. It brings so much calm. Mm. You know, even when I do my speaking engagements, um, right before my speaking engagements, I'll, you know, spray some eucalyptus room spray. Mm. I'll put on some eucalyptus body oil. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird obsession, but I love it. No, I think that's a great one. And it's accessible to people like go get yourself some eucalyptus oil. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know you mentioned things, but can I say people? Totally. It doesn't have to be things. It can be people. It can be experiences, anything. Right. So, and when I say people, I mean, kids or like pets, because there's just the way that they connect with you. It's just so different. Again, they, bring, they bring a lot of peace and calm and that connection. I is, don't know what kids, you know, I don't know any kids who bring me peace and calm. <laughs> they, they're too energetic for that, but they're certainly disarmingly honest and that's quite grounding. <laughs> 
Well, I have a cousin. Uh, she's four. And I, I don't know. Every time I am having a bad day, I'll call my aunt and I'll ask if I can FaceTime her, you know, and just looking at her and talking to her. I, I think it's, I think it's more about just watching her live life the way that they live life. It's, you know, carefree. They don't know the burdens of, you know, society, none of that stuff. It's all about just toys and, you know, when am I going to go out and I want to play and joy. Yeah, exactly. So I think just watching that is what brings me joy or my brother just got a puppy. Um, Oh my gosh, the best. Oh my God. Yes. I'm obsessed. He's (laughs) time. I'm having a bad day. I'll call up my brother and be like, Hey, I want to see Kubo. And, you know, Kubo doesn't know I'm FaceTiming him, but I FaceTime Kubo and I talk to Kubo. Amazing. Watching his videos. You're watching them explore things from a sensory point of view that's like pre all of your diagnoses, pre, pre the way that, that animals and, and children see the world is, you know, the way that we have to unlearn ourselves right? Like we have yes. to remove all of that social pressure and self-judgment and stuff. It yeah. bypasses intellect, goes yeah. straight and that's beautiful. And it sort of makes you forget about everything for a moment. And I love that. And then um, with, in terms of people, I also just love hearing people's stories. So I just find so much um, healing in hearing their stories. There's something about it that helps me process my pain, helps me accept it more. You know, I think that there's always one or two things that you can learn from anyone when you have a conversation, a deep conversation with someone, you know, and, and so how people move through hard parts of their life, you know, the most difficult journeys of their life. I just, those stories really inspire me and they give me life. I love that. That. um, I think yours will do that for other people too. I hope. I really hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So what is your ask for listeners today as well? What can they do to support you and the fibromyalgia and chronic illness community in your continuing work? Uh, I think that just listen. When someone tells you that they're in pain, believe them. When someone tells you they're struggling with something, believe them, hold space for them. Um, even if you, even if you can't, if you don't have the capacity to put yourself in their shoes, just at least accept their feelings, you know? I think that that's one thing that's so important. Um, also have more conversations about these sort of things. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy because there, there actually is a lot of conversation around mental health and chronic illness these days. But I think that those conversations only usually happen around people that actually have those um, illnesses. But it would be nice if, you know, anyone and everyone actually sits down and has 
if they sit down and they actually have that conversation and try to know people's struggles, it might help them understand someone else better. Also, I think that one of the biggest ways to support our community is for people to share this information. So a lot of times, if you come across an Instagram post that has to do with mental illness or chronic illnesses, share that. Don't just don't just read it because you reading it is that, that, that knowledge is only reaching you basically. Why don't you let that cycle go on and on so that all of your followers could read that, you know, there might be someone, there, there might be one person in your followers that actually knows someone with a mental illness or a chronic illness, and they're unable to understand that person. However, just because you shared that one post and they read that, it could help them understand that person better. So, you know, getting more comfortable with sharing and supporting people um, that are advocating for our mental illnesses, chronic illnesses, invisible illnesses, any sort of illnesses. Yeah. And what is next for you? What's next in Sarah's advocacy and wellness journey? Um, so right now I'm actually working on a docu-series. Um, and I'm, oh. uh, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be a five episode docu-series uh, covering different, each episode is going to be about a different chronic illness. Um, and We've only shot the first episode and then the pandemic happened and things sort of, you know, are put on hold for now, but I'm really looking forward to finishing that up. Um, I think that, you know, people need to know more about different chronic illnesses. I need to learn more about different chronic illnesses. I only know about the ones that I go through, you know, I need to learn as well. And so we shot the first first episode and it was a beautiful process because you know you just just knowing someone knowing about someone else's life at such a deeper level tears were shed um but yeah so I'm working on that um and I'm I'm you know um looking forward to doing more speaking engagements hopefully amazing and can you remind everyone where they can find you so they can follow for updates on the docu-series and also follow your blog? Of course. So my website is fabulousandfatigued.com. <laughs> Love it. Okay. And then my Instagram is fabulous.and.fatigued. Um, and, and we'll link to all of this on the webpage for the episode. Awesome. Too. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to, to share before I release you into your evening? Um. I just want to thank you for this. Um, This was wonderful. And I absolutely loved diving deep into, you know, my past life. I feel like it sort of made me realize how, how, how much my life has changed for the better and how I've come such a long way and things have, things are so nice now, thankfully. And they seem to be working out. So, you know, just just looking at the hard part um, 
and then being thankful for the, you know, easier and the happy part, if that makes any yeah. sense. Um, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, um, it's my pleasure. You did all the work. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just pleased to have had you on the show and I can't thank you enough for giving us your time and your energy and your presence today. It really was truly an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.